0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to the Bellevue Sermon Podcast. Today's message comes to you from the pulpit of Bellevue Baptist Church in Gadsden, Alabama, through our Sunday morning preaching ministry. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you, and that the Lord would use it for His glory. Well, amen. This morning you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. Again, that is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as we discuss sola gratia, or salvation by grace alone, this morning. As you're turning this morning, I'd like to share a story with you that I read in the book of one of my professors at Southern Seminary, and a story that I've heard him recount uh, in the classroom. Uh, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones is a professor of apologetics at Southern, and uh, I read one of his books called Proof. Finding Freedom Through the Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. In this book, Dr. Jones tells the story of taking one of his adopted daughters to Disney World. And every time I read this story, I am just overwhelmed uh, by emotion in so many ways. And and I hope that you'll hear this uh, as we listen to this story together. Dr. Jones says that they adopted his daughter at the age of eight. And uh, this was already her second adoption at that tender little age. You see, the first family that had adopted, their daughter, had dissolved the adoption just a few months earlier because she was, quote, too much trouble. Over time, Dr. Jones found out that when her previous family had taken vacations to Disney World, uh, they would take their biological children and they would leave the adopted daughter with a family friend. And this usually was because, at least in their justification, she had done something wrong that led to her not being good enough to go with them on the trip. So every year when they would go on family vacation, they'd leave this little adopted girl behind because she wasn't good enough. When Dr. Jones found out about this and that this was her dream, he said that he immediately had to just take the pain that his wallet was about to feel And he scheduled a vacation. One night just before the trip, the little girl got into some trouble, and Dr. Jones said that he had to talk to her. And she said to him, I know what you're gonna do. You're not gonna take me to Disney World, are you? He said, No, honey, there are gonna be consequences to help you learn not to do that again, but you are part of this family and we are not going to leave you behind. Dr. Jones said the day came and went. They had a day full of lines, overpriced food, and all that stuff that parents think about. And so he said in his mind, all he can see is just standing in line all day and whatever. And they got to the end of the day, and he asked her um, how her day was. So he's tucking her into bed, and she just seemed like something was nagging at her. And she said, I had a great day. It was great. I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It's a wonderful picture of the grace of God. It is not because we are good, but it is because we are His. You see, we cannot earn salvation by being good enough. We're simply saved by His grace. He calls us to salvation into His kingdom, not because we have worked hard enough or we've earned anything or there's anything beautiful or glorious or wonderful in us, but because he's chosen us and made us his own by his grace. Sola gratia, as we read in our responsive reading this morning, it states that from beginning to end, our salvation is solely by the grace of God. Sola gratia means that our salvation, again, is totally of grace. And this is the message of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that it is not by our abilities, our goodness, or our works but it is by God's grace alone. So let's explore this wonderful truth together. If you're physically able this morning, please stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm, follow- I'm reading from the ESV. You follow along in your translation. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear God in heaven, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. Lord, we know that there is rarely a service when we gather together where we don't Mention your grace, where we don't thank you in, in prayer or through the readings or through confession for your grace. But Lord, we pray that today as we think about the goodness of it, Lord, as we think about the wondrous love that you've shown us, the Father, we would respond with worship, with adoration, with praise, giving you the glory that you deserve. And Lord, we recognize that today as a group of believers and we gather together and we hear this message of grace, that Lord, it will challenge us and, and convict us and encourage us. And Father, hopefully we realize it will equip us. Lord, your word says that you will equip us for those works that you have prepared ahead of time. Father, we pray that today the people who are in this room would not only be hearers of the word, but Lord, doers. And Lord, I pray that even now as I share this message, that Lord, you would move me out of the way, proclaim your message to your people. We ask for your honor and your blessing and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see clearly in the text of Ephesians that salvation is by grace alone. In fact, we can't miss that. The statement in Ephesians chapter 2 clearly emphasizes this this message of grace, and and it clearly states that our salvation is by grace alone. But what does that truly mean? You see, we say all the time that we are saved by grace, but what does that truly mean? What is grace? Well, put shortly and neatly, grace is unmerited favor, right? It's undeserved blessing. It is God showing love to the unlovable. It is God redeeming rebels, not because they are deserving of it, but because he is gracious and kind. Grace is us receiving that which we do not deserve, and that is salvation. As we think about grace, again, it's easy to uh, think about the favorite hymn of America, right? That amazing grace. We sing of how sweet it is and how wonderful it is, and yet so often we neglect the beauty of this topic. This passage here in uh, the second chapter of Ephesians is a masterclass on the topic of grace. We could spend months just diving into the nature and wonder of grace. But today, we're simply going to spend our time looking at Paul's words to the Ephesians here and seeing the scriptural evidence that salvation is truly by grace alone. And as usual, I have three major points for us to look at together. The first thing I want you to see in this text is our condition and that we are totally unable to do anything to save ourselves. We see this clearly from verses 1 through 3 here. You see, by understanding the condition of each person prior to salvation, we learn a lot about how it happens and how it doesn't happen. Paul could not be any more clear here about the default state and nature of mankind. Paul here is obviously speaking to believers because he is talking in the past tense. He says, you were. You once were, right? These are the kind of language uh, points that we have here to realize very clearly that he is talking about the past tense state of a believer. But what that tells us is that this is the default state of man. Who did you used to be dead in trespasses and sins? They were dead in sin. And that phrase is unnatural for us because there's not much of anything in our world that was dead or that were dead. The laws of nature tell us that dead things stay dead. And this is a consequence of the fall of Adam. After Adam and Eve fell, all human sins have been dead in sin. Just as uh, the physical death is a consequence for every single human since Adam and Eve. Spiritual death is a consequence for every single person since Adam and Eve. We are all born dead in sin. Here's the thing. We remain dead in sin until we physically die unless something outside acts upon us. We realize very clearly dead means dead, and dead, we realize cannot do anything. Over the centuries, there have been those who would, who would argue theologically, well you know we are actually just sick, right? That, that sin is a sickness and it leads to death. And, and I have to respond to that. No, the Bible says we are dead in sin. We are not just sick or corrupted, we are dead. I've shared with you before that if you come in my office, I have a little cartoon of, of two theologians from way back, Pelagius and Augustine. And uh, they're sitting on a riverbank, and Augustine's sitting on a hippopotamus because he's Augustine of hippo. And, and he's sitting there, and he's looking at Pelagius, who's uh, thrown a life preserver out to a skeleton floating in the river. And Pelagius says, just grab it. And Augustine says, well, Pelagius, he can't. He's dead. He's dead. You see, this is the difference between just thinking that people are sick and believing that people are dead in sin. And this impacts more than just, again, a, a, a small theological point. What this does is it impacts so much of the way that we live out our faith because if we think that people are just sick but need convincing, then we're tempted to rely on everything but Scripture alone as we talked about last week. We'll do everything we can to twist their will and their motives. We'll do everything we can to manipulate their emotions into just, into just jumping into something. But if people are dead in their sin, we will rely on Scripture alone because God has said that it is the means that He will use to convict His people of their sins and to call them to new life in Him. But the language of dead and sin that Paul uses here, it shows us that we're totally unable to come to God on our own. We're unable to save ourselves. We need the grace of God. We can't do it in our own strength. Why? We are dead. George Whitfield, uh, the famous evangelist, would preach on this, and he says, what? Get to heaven on your own strength? You might as well try to climb the moon on a rope of sand. We can't do it on our own And so we see clearly that our condition is dead and thus unable to save ourselves, but Paul doesn't stop there. No, he continues to flesh this idea out. Paul says, before you were saved, you were following the course of the world. How many of you, before you were saved, that was your life? Follow the culture. I'm going to follow the world. I'm going to do what they do me to do, what they influence me to do. Whether I believe it's right or wrong, I'm following what the world says. I, I hear this all the time, and one of the ways that I know that we are uh, fallen people who do this is because I was thinking about it last night when I was driving on the interstate. It doesn't matter what the speed limit is. I'm just keeping up with traffic. So, So many of us have lived our life over the years doesn't matter what's right and wrong. We're just following the course of the world. We're keeping up with the traffic of the world. Paul says, you were following the course of the world. You're like everyone else. But then he keeps going, and he says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We need to realize that whenever we're following the world, ultimately at the end of that, we're following evil. We are following the evil one. Basically, Paul is saying that those who are dead in sin, they're led by just about everything evil. The world, its culture, the evil one. And then he continues and he says, you know what? Not only are you just following the world and the evil one, you're following your passions and your desires and your appetite. The desires of the body and the mind. To the point that basically when we are dead in sin, we walk around at the mercy of our sinful flesh and again we think about our lives before christ this is the descriptor we're following the culture we're following evil we are following our own desires which are evil because our heart is desperately sick and deceitful paul though continues and he says that you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind why does paul throw that in here Well, there's a couple of things that are are really important. You see, we don't like to talk about our our sin and how pervasive it really is in our lives. What Paul is saying here is that this is not an uncommon thing. Paul saying, I'm not just describing the worst sinners. I'm describing every last one of us. Paul's saying, I'm not just talking about terrorists or murderers or those kinds of things. He says, I'm talking about all of us. He says, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's our nature, as fallen human beings, that we would be this way. And by that nature, because of that, we are children of wrath. We deserve judgment and the wrath of God because of this pervasive sin. And again, this is not just one of us. It's not just the most sinful of us that deserve the wrath and judgment of God. No, it's every single person because every single person has this sin nature. There is none righteous. No, not one. And so what Paul has done here is he has told us that comprehensively, the dead in sin, first of all, can't do anything to save themselves. They're totally unable to do anything about their situation. And then we are all by nature dead in sin. It's all of us. This is who we were if we are believers and this is who you are if you're not. But together what this tells us is that there is nothing good in any of us that God should choose us. So when we're saved, it's not because we did anything or or could do anything or that we're smarter than other people or that we're just so great that God chose us because we're better than all the rest of the peasants around us. No, we're all sinful and thus all who are saved are not saved because of anything we did or anything we are. We're saved because God is gracious and it's totally by the grace of God. Had Paul stopped at verse 3, this would have been a a sad discourse. We're all dead in sin, can't do anything about it. But verse 4 begins with a but. But God. We could do nothing because of our sin, but God, however, by His great grace chose to save His people. Which brings us to my second point this morning. That is, our salvation is all of God's grace. It's all of God. What does this mean? It means, again, it is all of God's grace. As I frequently have told you over my almost three years of ministry here, we contribute nothing but the sin that made it necessary. We contribute nothing to salvation except the sin that made it necessary. He does all the saving. Let's ask a question of the text here. What changes us from dead in sin and children of wrath? But God. Notice very clearly and simply here that it was not but us or but I. It was but God. God is the one who is doing the saving and everything to make it come about. And this is not the only place that Paul says this. Paul is, is nothing if not consistent. In Romans 9, 16, says, So it's does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Our salvation is not dependent on our will or our effort. It is dependent on God. And thankfully, we have a God who is gracious and by His grace chose to send His Son to die on the cross on our behalf. And by His grace, He chose to call us from dead in sin to life in Christ. As we said earlier, beginning to end, salvation is all of God's grace. And what Paul begins to do here in the rest of this section is to walk us through that here. He takes us from before the foundation of the world to after the end of this world. And earlier in Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that before the foundation of the world, God chose us and predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus. Here in our passage, Paul says that God set his love on us even when we were dead in sin. Again, as we've already been talking about, he loved us when we were dead sinful wretches. He didn't choose us when we were cute or special or smart. No, he set his love on us and chose to save us when we were dead in sin. But he didn't just love us. No, he moved on our behalf. The text tells us how we go from dead in sin to life in Christ. He made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. We didn't earn ourselves alive. We didn't choose ourselves alive. He made us alive. How? By grace. That's what the text says. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so we've gone from before the foundation of the world to our conversion. God has made us alive. This is when we're born again. So he chose us by grace because we didn't do anything to make him choose us. He converted us, made us born again by grace because we couldn't do anything to make ourselves alive. But verse 6 tells us that God also finishes our salvation by grace. He didn't just make us alive, but he raises us up. Seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. And when we hear that, we tend to get frustrated and and, and maybe not understand exactly what is happening here. But guys, he has seated us. That is a great way. Here's the easiest way to describe this. Have you ever been to a restaurant and had to wait an exorbitant amount of time? Seems to be a frequent occurrence for most of us. You see, there's a difference in waiting on a table and hoping one opens up and being seated You understand where I'm coming from? There's a security in that. He has seated us. We aren't waiting on a table to open up. We are seated. Our eternal place is secure because it's all by God's grace. And so what happens is he finishes our salvation by grace. He keeps us and sanctifies us and seals us for eternity. Because listen, if we couldn't earn it, we certainly can't keep it on our own either. We're kept by God's grace. We sing that when we sing this favorite song of our church, He will hold me fast. I can never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. You see, he holds us till the end. We are kept by his grace. The only reason we have a perseverance of the saints is because we have a God that holds on tight with an iron grip. We don't have perseverance of the saints if we don't have sola gratia. So what we see here is that it is God who first set his love on us before the foundation of the world according to Ephesians 1, through 4-6. It is God who made us alive. It is God who raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places. And this sequence takes us again from before the foundation of the world all the way until after this world has passed away. All of it from beginning to end is by God, by His grace, and there can be no question about this. This is why Hebrews 12, 2 calls God the author and finisher of our faith, because He began it and He completes it by His grace. And guys, this grace is unique. Christianity is the only religion ever to have grace. Buddhism has the eightfold path. Hindus have karma. Jews have a covenant of works. Muslims have a strict code of ethics. All of these are works-based religions. This is you have to keep fighting and scratching and clawing and earning and, and beautifying yourself until you get to some point that you don't know if you've ever done enough, until you get to some point which maybe you're saved. When it comes to our salvation, Paul tells us that works cannot save. And within our system of belief, the only true right belief, what we find is that salvation is not based on our working or our earning or our beauty or our goodness. It is based on God's grace. Paul says in Romans eleven six, 6, this is if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And what happens is that so many of us want to hold these two things in tension. That, that oh, well, you know, I believe that I'm saved by grace, but I'm going to work as hard as I can because I need to make sure I earn it. And it's impossible. If works are in it at all, grace is no longer grace. And if works are in it at all, we have failed to understand the gospel. Because the gospel is that we cannot do any of it ourselves. In other words, if we contribute anything to salvation, it ceases to be grace. So all of it, beginning to end, is of God and by God and for God, and it is all done by God's grace. And if that's the case, that has a dramatic impact on the way that we live, which brings us to our third point. The purpose of this grace, the purpose of grace is God's glory. There are many of you who say here today, why would God do it this way? Well, Romans 9 tells us he doesn't owe us an answer, but he gives us one anyway. Romans 9, Paul tells us that God has compassion on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills for one distinct purpose, to show his glory. And the purpose of grace in Ephesians 2 is exactly the same. God saves us by grace because it brings him glory. You see, when we realize we don't do anything, we don't steal any of his glory. When we realize we were saved by the grace of God, we give Him all the glory because He did all the saving, and we cannot help but praise Him. Look at the breakdown of the remaining verses here in Ephesians 2, in verses 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful verse immeasurable riches of grace. The Lord has for us immeasurable riches of grace, and he wants to show that. The show part of this verse indicates that it will be seen so that he will be glorified. You see, as believers, we really have no choice but to glorify God for the riches of grace that he has shown us in Christ already. We already have every reason to praise God for all of eternity, but what we see here is that yet, even in the coming ages, He will pour out immeasurably more. When we go on in Ephesians, what you find is that He says, It is greater, more abundantly than all we think or ask. Immeasurable riches of grace. This is all neatly tied together here in verses 8 and 9. In case there's any doubt remaining, Paul tells us this is not of our own doing. Verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, It's not of our own doing. This here even is faith. We're saved by grace. But Paul tells us here that even the faith we have is a gift of God. So this is not a result of works. Why? What's the purpose? If it's not a result of works, then it was salvation by grace. Why? So that no one may boast. Boasting ultimately is about glory. You see, if our salvation was by works or wits we would have every reason to boast. I did more than you, so I'm better. I'm smarter than you, so I know better. Paul here is saying that there's no room for that, that none of us may boast. You see, when we boast of ourselves in salvation, we are glory thieves, stealing glory from the God who redeemed us from death in the pit. And so if we are not to be boasting or glorified who is, again, the God who actually did, The saving. The boasting is not in ourselves, it is in God. God is good and gracious and wonderful and mighty. I love the last verse of how deep the Father's love for us, because it says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Rather than boasting in ourselves, we are to boast in the Lord. You see, salvation by grace alone, it prevents us from ever boasting in ourselves. Instead, it aligns us with Scripture that tells us that every good thing is from above. It aligns us with the writers of Scripture so that we live to the praise of His glorious grace. Salvation by grace alone means that we have to give Him the glory. Because we did nothing glorious and were nothing glorious, but He chose to save us even when we were dead. And He did it all and He accomplished it and He will bring it to a perfect completion. And so the purpose of a salvation by grace is clear. In Romans 9.23, Paul writes again similarly, that God desires to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, this is believers, which he has prepared beforehand for what? Glory. The purpose of a salvation by grace planned out before the foundation of the world is that God would be glorified. In verse 10, our final verse this morning, confirms this. Verse 10 shows that we are his workmanship. Again, reminiscent of the potter and the clay in Romans 9. Created by him to do good works that he has prepared ahead of time so that we will walk in them. We don't do these works in a vacuum and for no purpose. We do them again for his glory. The similarity with this thought in Paul's words in Romans 9 are obvious. We are to walk in such a way having been saved by grace that we fulfill God's will and that we demonstrate his grace and glory to the world around us so that in all of it, what we see is that the purpose of salvation by grace is God's glory. And Paul even said this of his own salvation. This morning, Brandon read this from 1 Timothy. Paul's sort of testimony Calls himself the chief of sinners. What does he say? I received mercy for this reason. That in me, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. What Paul does here is he makes a nice little chain. He connects his salvation, again, to the mercy and grace of our Lord. He connects his salvation to realizing that he was, in his own words, the chief of sinners. There's nothing good in him. And he connects this salvation by grace with Christ demonstrating his glory. And Paul's response even to just thinking about this salvation by grace is to launch into praise to the king of the ages immortal, invisible the only God be honor and glory forever and ever amen when he contemplates his salvation by grace immediately his response is praise to doxology it's worship. And giving God the glory. And so as we think about sola gratia, I hope that this morning what you have seen from this text is that we are saved by the glorious grace of God alone. We see this in Paul's description of our condition. Again, that we are totally unable to save ourselves. We see this in Paul's description of our salvation. That it is all of God. It is God who makes alive. And we see this in the purpose that because it is all of God, God deserves all the glory. And so if you're here this morning and you would say, I identify with that person in the first three verses. Right now I am walking around and I'm that person. I'm dead in sin. I'm following the world. I'm following my passions and my desires. Chasing down pure evil. What must I do to be saved? Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Place all your hope in him and his death, burial, and resurrection, and throw yourselves on his mercy and grace. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, gave an invitation after a sermon on this passage. He says, I don't come in the pulpit hoping that perhaps somebody will of his own free will return to Christ this morning. My hope lies in another quarter. I hope that my master will lay hold of some of them and say, You are mine and you shall be mine. I claim you for myself. The Lord is calling you today. If he has claimed you, then praise be to God for his glorious grace. Live like it. But if you are a believer here today, then we should take to heart the words of the famous Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield. He tells us that grace is not true of us only when we believe. It's just as true after we have believed. It'll continue to be true as long as we live. It is always on His blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. There is never anything that we are or have or do that can take His place or that can take a place along with Him. We are always unworthy And all that we have or do of good is always of pure grace. We need to live our lives recognizing we are totally reliant upon God's grace. And we need to give him the praise he deserves in response to that. May we do so by his grace. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, we thank you for your graciousness and your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you have called us from dead in sin and made us alive. And Lord, we thank you that you are still calling those who are dead in sin. Lord, even now as the gospel is preached here and around the world, we know that your word is doing its work as we talked about last week. And we know that by your grace, people are hearing and believing. Lord, we pray that it would be so here today. Not just that the lost would hear and believe, Lord, but that the believer would be convicted and would act. Lord, help us to walk in your grace. And Lord, help us to praise you for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.